There are no secrets. And if you have a really good grasp of what you're passionate about and who you want to reach and the type of product that you want to create for them, you will have tons of obstacles along the way. That was Sally Bergeson, and this is the Running On Ohm podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I'm curious to know whether you have chronic knee pain or a knee injury that interferes with your day-to-day life or athletic endeavors. Do your knees ache, swell, lock, or perhaps catch? Maybe your knees don't hurt, but your running buddy is always complaining of their knees hurting. Well, today's podcast sponsor is looking for patients with certain knee cartilage injuries to evaluate Neocart, an investigational cartilage tissue implant grown from a patient's own cells. The procedure uses regenerative medicine technology that could provide an alternative to the standard of care microfracture surgery that if you've struggled with knee pain, you may have already been presented with. The Neocart clinical trial is for athletes, yogis, anyone between the ages of 18 and 59 who suffers from pain in one knee. Ask yourself right now, is my knee pain stopping me from living my best life? Or is knee pain stopping a loved one from being active? If so, then this clinical trial may be for you or a loved one. To find out more, text KNEE17 to 87888 or call 844-238-5633. That's 844-238-5633 or text KNEE17 If you want to learn more about the Neocart clinical trial, visit neocartimplant.com and visit this episode's show notes to learn more. Now, let's dive into our show. Hey friends, if this is your first time tuning into Running on Own, welcome. And if this is your 182nd time, welcome back. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and what do we do here on Running on Ohm? Well, every week, I bring you conversations that are beyond just the nuts and bolts of yoga and running. Here at Running on Ohm, we dive deep with wellness pioneers who explore the mind-body-spirit connection through different mediums, from actors, meditators, musicians, athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. Some of the people I bring on for all of you, you may know and revere, and others are undiscovered gems. So thank you for trusting me with your headspace and your heart space twice a week. Today's conversation is with Sally Bergeson, founder and CEO of Wazelle. Wazelle is a women's running apparel company that honestly does so much more than just make running clothing. Wazelle is changing the market for women's running as it's redefining what sisterhood and sport is really all about. And today I had the honor of interviewing the woman behind the company. To be honest with you guys, I've had a bucket list of people I've dreamed of having on Rue since the very beginning, and Sally's been on the list for the past two years. In this conversation, Sally shares about the inspiration behind Wazelle. Sally had a background in consulting where she consulted brands like Nike and marketing strategy and was the mind behind the name Plan B, the emergency contraceptive. When Sally started Wazelle in 2007, she had the desire to build something that was more than just a sports apparel company with a cool name, but a movement of women runners across the world who support one another in pursuing their dreams at any level. In today's podcast, Sally talks about her own journey with running and what lights up her running now. We delve into the inspiration behind entrepreneurship and the early days of starting Wazelle and look at the growth and future of the Wazelle team. Sally also discusses sports activism, politics and the sports of running, and the meaning behind the hashtag WomanUp. I'm really honored to have Sally on this podcast. And before we dig into our conversation, I have an exciting podcast sponsor to tell you about that could take your active lifestyle to the next level. The Rain, made by Jaybird Sport, is an active recovery band that's worn on your wrist like a sleek and comfortable bracelet, but does so much more than just track your steps and sleep. 
Do you ever wonder in the morning how hard to push for your workout that day? Well, the Rain's Go Zone gives you a go score every morning that tells you how recovered, fatigued, or ready you are for your workout based on your heart rate variability data. The Rain also automatically tracks and categorizes the various activities you do and provides you with recommendations on how many hours to sleep, when to head to bed, and when to wake up based on your sleep patterns. If you too want to experience taking your active life to the next level with the Rain, JBoot has given Running on Ohm listeners a generous discount of 40% off. Yes, you heard it right, 40% off this advanced active recovery band with the discount code FLESHMAN40. That's F-L-E-S-H-M-A-N 40 on jbirdsport.com, which is valid before February 29th, 2016. So hurry up, just a few days left. And for more information, visit this episode's show notes. I can't wait to hear what you all think about my conversation with Sally. So reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram and share this conversation with your running buddy, your mailman, your mom, your friend, or someone you know who's ready to be inspired by entrepreneurship, sports activism, and so much more. Thank you for listening to this longer intro. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm. And let's dive deep together in today's episode with Sally Bergeson. Yeah, I can't recall, but I... I just like your voice is very distinctive, so I just have this clear <laughs> you can imprint of your voice. Aww. Yeah, it's it's great. It's kind of funny how you can hear someone's voice a lot, whether it's like a singer or a podcast host, yeah. and then you meet them, and you're like, oh, this is their voice in real time in their body, in their body. <laughs> yeah, how it all works. Yeah, or you can see a picture. I mean, I've I feel like I followed the Wazelle mm-hmm. community for so long, and I've seen so many pictures of everyone, mm-hmm. and then like meeting everyone mm-hmm. in person. I'm like, wow, they're even more beautiful in person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's cool. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, it is cool. It's also a weird thing though about well, social media. Lauren and I have talked about this a good amount. Is like mm-hmm. you can make a construction of someone mm-hmm. based on their social media presence, mm-hmm. and that doesn't always allow you to actually just like meet them in real time and open mm-hmm. up to who they are. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, it's like I don't know. Yeah, you can meet 10 to 20% of them maybe. And even that, it is it is a construct. It, you know, it's, a, it's like a, a filter or an aspect um, because even, the, even they have, construct, you know, constructed it in a certain way. Oh, for sure. And depending on what their goal is with social media. Yeah. Will position it, you know, and I mean, I'm aware of that a lot sometimes with, you know, being the CEO of a company and representing the company. And that's the whole reason why I started using social media. So, so you were never on any social media before Wazelle? No, in fact, I started using Twitter in 2009 purely because we had no marketing budget. And so there was this thing that came, somebody mentioned it to me, oh, you try Twitter. So, I started using it and I just realized right away that it was a way for me to, with no money, essentially start having, you know, conversations with people about anything, you know, it could be about running apparel or life or Seattle or whatnot. So that's why I was just taken with it right away it was just more of the kind of like sweat equity um, that it allowed in terms of building a company. Yeah, that's so cool that it is this free mechanism to connect and to spread the work you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where would you say your relationship to it is right now? You know, it's a, it's definitely evolved, and I still love Twitter the best. It's funny when you ask me about personal social media. I have a Facebook account, but 
Uh, I, I never use it. And there's things about Facebook that I really don't like uh, when you compare it to things like Twitter. And I think it's the, I think it's the, uh, so much positioning around that presentation aspect and especially around families, it's like very easy to make your personal life and family life look perfect. And I don't think that's a very healthy aspect of social media. I think it actually, mm, I think instead of sort of making things more humane or more accessible, sometimes makes people feel more isolated or maybe more distant. So it's a little bit of the opposite of what I think, you know, a lot of the talk around social media says that it's achieving. So so I like Twitter for the fact that it's short, it's pithy. Um, you know, in my past life, I used to be a copywriter. And uh, so it plays to my, my headline writing strengths. Um, but yeah, it's evolved a little bit. Definitely as we've grown, you know, I, I can be maybe a little bit more careful with it than I used to be. Um, but I... I have always felt that it's very important to have an authentic voice, whether that's personally or from a, even from a company standpoint. And I, I used to consult with clients and tell them that all the time. And so when I started Wazel, I really, it was important for me to actually deliver on that. Yeah. So when you said past life, like what, what was the beginnings before you were working with Wazel or started Wazel? What kind of work did you do? Well, let's see. In college, I was an English major, and my dad's a lawyer. So when you're an English major with the dad who's a lawyer, you sort of feel like you're kind of moving in that direction. And I just remember out of college, I would always get asked, are you going to be a lawyer or are you going to be a teacher? And that sort of seemed to be the two things that people um, uh, associated with having an English degree. And I really didn't want to do either, but I actually started to go down the law path. I was a paralegal for six years and considered going to law school. But I think I just got to this point where I realized that the law, even though there can be quite a quite a lot of creativity involved in building a case and doing the analysis, it didn't have the type of creativity that I was looking for. And so I was kind of just floundering around a little bit. And, you know, this is back when, you know, job listings used to be in newspapers. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, um, and so I was just like fishing around and I ended up uh, responding to an ad for, um, it was a design agency. And I, I honestly, I went into that interview knowing nothing about what they did, but I just knew that when I walked in the lobby and I saw this beautiful art, um, these designs, these posters, and they were doing like really beautiful, you know, product packaging. And, and I just knew that I, I had sort of arrived in a home of sorts and I, I wanted to be involved at that point. And so that's when I started my branding and design career. And it started out, I was an assistant. I was hired to be an assistant for the founder. And it was funny because, you know, I didn't really want to be an assistant. By that time, I felt like I had already, you know... Um, paid your dues. Yeah, exactly. I'd paid my dues and uh, and I was ready to do something bigger. And he, But he didn't actually want an assistant either. So <laughs> he was very much like in control of his own calendar and, you know, managed everything. So we kind of looked at each other and, I, and, and he was like, well, 
you better figure out what you want to do here then. You know, there's all these areas that need help. One of them was PR and media. And so I, I kind of sunk my teeth into that, kind of figuring out how I could get more press for the agency and the agency's work that we were doing. And it was beautiful work. We were doing work for Microsoft and the Pacific Northwest Ballet and Hogue uh, Wine Cellars. So it was really a diverse body of work. So it was really fun to kind of learn the ropes in terms of, you know, industry magazines and trade publications and business publications and all of that. So I I dove in. And then when I kind of got a little bit bored of that, um, this was like the late 90s and it was kind of when the dot-com boom was happening. And so brand strategy was becoming a big thing. Um, Companies were waking up to the fact that um, a logo is not just uh, artwork. Uh, It actually had um, significant business equity and that businesses need to pay attention to how they built their brand and how they talked about their brand and what they communicated. And so I started to work in brand strategy really as an apprentice to the leader in the design firm that I worked for. And she was amazing, one of my early mentors, uh, along with the founder of the company. And so I got to kind of really dive in there and really learn and end up consulting around the most, you know, what I still hold on to as the most valuable tenets of branding and what it means to be um a vital, uh, important, emotionally connected brand. So that was kind of my education in that area. And I worked for that for five years. And then I quit my job in 2001, which was a terrible year to quit your job. It was actually pre 9-11. But my thought was I'd go out on my own and create my own consulting practice, um, which I did. It was called Waywards. And I, by that time I had one child and I, um, quit my job. September 11th happened, which actually was a horrible timing because we had also just bought a house. And, at, and the, you know, the, the market went down and, and um, dot-com bust, et cetera. And really nobody was hiring independent marketing consultants. So I really had to work hard to find jobs. But, but then things started to recover and I worked, I had that consulting practice for roughly... 15 years, I actually held on to it while I was starting Wazelle in 2007. And um, it continued to be my kind of other job while I figured out if Wazelle was actually going to make it. Were you ever consulting athletic brands or running apparel brands? Yes. uh, I actually did a great project for Nike in about 2004. Um, I did a project for the Jordan Group. So uh, they at the time were going through some business challenges having to do with their wholesale partners. I think it was Foot Locker at the time. And so they were they were needing to kind of reposition the brand and really make sure that they were communicating that it was a premium brand. And so I did a brand manifesto for that group, which is still kind of one of the coolest projects I got to work on. And uh, and just because as a brand person, sometimes you don't get a chance to do those kind of high-end pieces that are more about an idea than opposed to like selling something. So so that was that was great. And then I went, that same client went on to work for Reebok. Uh, and then later he hired me to do kind of the same thing for Reebok for their uh, women's group. They were, you know, starting to form internally a business group um, to support the women's business. So I, I worked with them as well. That's so cool that you got to see different running companies before you ended up, you know, starting your own Mm. to get that really like insider's view into probably like what you did like about them and what you didn't like. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really good 
like thing that you've hit on here in my my progression because it was actually that time when I got to see the inside of those companies that I realized it, it gave me the confidence and the strength to do my own thing because I got inside and I looked around and I realized that I realized that they didn't have a secret formula that there were people inside these companies that knew as much or potentially less than I did about my target customer and about, you know, for me, the running market and the woman runner. So it did give me a sense of um, just, yeah, I guess just confidence that that there there are no secrets. Uh, and if you have a really good grasp of what you're passionate about and who you want to reach and the type of product that you want to create for them, that there's, um, you know, you will have tons of obstacles along the way having to do with, you know, actually the execution part, which is huge. But in terms of understanding, um, you know, so many people have that. Um, but a, a lot of times the perception is, oh, it's a big company. They kind of have it, they have it figured out and they have some sort of black box on it. And it's just not true. Yeah. And you spoke to the fact that you had a real window into the women's runner's perspective. Mm -hmm. And that was something you probably could bring to those companies. What was your history as a runner? Like, could we go back, back in time and just like your first running memory? Yeah, no, I, <laughs> it's funny. I, I always remembered, you know, just being, I was a tomboy, grew up in Berkeley, California. This is like Berkeley in the early 70s. So just total, you know, hippies. Just, you know, crazy, like, outdoor children. It was a little bit like you were all wild animals out there just climbing <laughs> trees and, you know, running around, no shoes, you know. So, you know, that was – and I, I was raised in a uh, – I was raised by my dad, actually. My parents divorced when I was four, and so he raised my brother and I. And so that added another element of just uh, requirement to be independent, I guess. Hardiness, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, so – so very much a tomboy, grew up in an all-male household. It's uh, still why I like professional football because I got hooked on <laughs> football early, watching it with my my dad and my brother. But uh, but so I would I would say just active and like naturally athletic as a kid. But I really didn't get interested in running. I tried soccer a little bit on a co-ed team. Didn't really play to my strengths. I was probably about twelve or thirteen at the time. And then I do remember my dad, he really got, he got bit by the running bug in the 70s, kind of the whole jogging boom. Um, he's a lawyer. He worked in San Francisco and he used to go on lunchtime runs with his colleagues at the law firm and they would run down to the marina. And it was like this thing, you know, that they did for, you know, bonding and, you know, getting out of the office and stuff. So he, he um, encouraged me to run and I still remember the first quote unquote tracksuit he he bought me. I don't remember the brand, but it was like a, you know, this is the seventies, so it was like a lovely dookie brown <laughs> um I think it was terry cloth. I think it was like a cotton terry cloth brown um sweatsuit that had it might have even been a short sleeve zip front, full zip front top, and then some shorts and some pants with you know with some really lovely like darker brown like binding around the legs and stuff so um but I remember I remember him taking me out and us running and so 
So that was kind of the initial thing. And then, and I remember it feeling natural, but it really didn't um, dawn on me that I might compete or do something as part of a team until my senior year in high school. I had been dating a guy who was a year older than me through high school. And to be honest, he was bad news. It was, uh, it was like a boy that I would just be like horrified if my daughters dated somebody like him today. But anyway, the good news was that he went off to college and I kind of got my head out of my ass and decided I was going to like, you know, start doing something with my body. And so I showed up to the volleyball team because I really wanted to be on the volleyball team. I was like, oh, they get to wear these cute clothes and the shorts and the ribbons in the hair and they're all on a team and it looks so fun. And I just, I was horrible. I was just, you know, so, um, I immediately, the coach was like, well, I, you know, I can't even do anything with you. I mean, you're a senior, so it's not like I can cultivate you for next year. So he basically was just like, don't, you know, don't even bother. And so that's when I went to the cross country team, which had like four girls on it, maybe. I mean, there was just, there was just nobody on the team. And so they were like thrilled to see me. And, you know, I don't know how thrilled I was to see them. It seemed like kind of a sad setup. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. But um, anyway, so that was uh, that was the beginning of cross country, uh, my senior year in high school. And then I went to Oregon, which uh, ironically, I, I never ran for the team there. And uh, I look back on it now, and I'm actually glad I didn't run in college because I think it preserved me in some ways for really falling in love with running in a different way later on. So um, kind of similar to high school, by the end of college, I was getting a little bit bored of just, um, you know, being distracted or kind of being half into things or you know, drinking too much beer and all the things that college students, you know, tend to do. And so I met my husband who was a really into cycling and was really already living the athlete lifestyle as a cyclist, not as a runner. And I just remember looking and I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. Like you're really dedicated to your sport and you're like healthy and like, you know, you know, you're eating well, you know, it was just kind of sleep early. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It was just all of a sudden it kind of looked like a good future, like okay, I need to get my act together. So I kind of did this little recall on like, what do I like to do? You know, because I tried cycling a little bit with him. And to be honest, I just didn't love it. And so I started picking up running a little bit my senior year at Oregon. And it was so funny. And now that I think back on it, on it being an apparel maker, because I I think I went down to, I think the first Nike town was in Eugene. And I went down there and I was so like in not intimidated, but I just didn't want to be bothered talking to a salesperson about being fit in the right shoes. So I literally just like pulled a shoe off the wall and was just like, I'll take these, you know, in a size eight. And so I bought shoes and then I ran around Eugene, usually usually after dark. I don't know why, but I would used to run after dark a lot by myself, question mark. (laughs) Um, But I would wear like my flannel boxers that I, that were like my pajamas and like, I don't even know what I was wearing for a sports bra. I'm not very big, so maybe nothing. Um, and then like a cotton T-shirt. And uh, so that that was kind of the beginning of running for me. And I just, you know, it really caught, c- caught my soul um, at that stage in my life just because I think I was looking for that next step. And then I, and then I you know, my, my husband was born and raised here in Seattle, went to the University of Washington. He kind of wooed me up here. So I, I moved to Seattle and r- that's when I really got into the, the competitive side in earnest. 
Did you enjoy the competitive side, like the structured training? Because it sounds like when you started or when you restarted again and that in college, it was just your soul Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, I think in the beginning, it was really just about learning to do it. Like, (laughs) it sounds really funny, but actually learning to enjoy this activity. And then, and then I think a lot of people go through this when they get caught with running and they realize that they enjoy it. Not only that, but maybe they have an aptitude for it, that you start seeing a change in your body and you start seeing that you're able to start go faster. And then maybe you enter a 5k and then you kind of get this mark in your head of like, okay, well, I ran a 1930. I wonder if next time I could run 19 flat. And then, and since, um, my husband was an athlete, and he had he had actually done a lot of track uh, and cross country in high school, and so he understood, you know, the basics. He's like, "Why don't you go do some intervals? You know, like I'll take you down to the track, and you know, we'll try." You know, so so once I I kind of uh, caught on to that, I I I really caught like I really got excited about it. I went and bought, you know, this is going to date me, but I, and not that it's not still relevant, but I bought Jeff Galloway's book on running, you know, which was kind of like the Bible at the time of, you know how to, you know, do some basic, you know, workouts and training plans, et cetera. So I really did like the structure. It really gave my whole life like a really awesome foundation for not only improving in sport, but, you know, I was had just moved to Seattle. I was, you know, starting my first out-of-college career. I was, like I had said earlier, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do and whether I was going to be a lawyer or paralegal or what. But it it gave me just a foundation for doing something bigger in my life, even though I didn't know at the time what that was. Yeah. And that, I mean, so many of the lessons we learned through running and through training and through showing up, that kind of mental strength and those principles transfer to everything else we do in our lives. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When you were beginning, do you recall a certain race where you felt like, wow, I really have that aptitude for this, or I feel really strong, or this is really exciting, like in those first couple years. Yeah, I had both. <laughs> I, I remember in high school, I finished last in my first cross-country race and swore that I would never do it again. So I think it's good, like, you know, before you get the sense of aptitude, you might get the sense of frustration and that this is not for you. And I definitely had those kind of early experiences, both when I tried it in high school. It was funny, later in my career in high school, all of a sudden I was like passing people and I was like... Oh, this is different. So a similar thing happened when I moved to Seattle. I, I, Alec, my husband, he he encouraged me to jump into the USATF, you know, um, Pacific Northwest Cross Country Regional Champs, you know, at Woodland Park, which is sort of like what you don't want to do if you're like a newbie runner and you're just like dipping your toe in the water because it's basically like all the fasties in town, and there's only like 25 of them, and they're all there, and then it's you. And so I had I had that one funny experience of. I just, I still remember um, Doris Brown Heritage was at that race and I was like, you know, just trying my best, but it was so foreign. And she was, she yelled at me when I was running downhill. She's like, you're, you know, run fast downhill, run fast down the hill. And I was just like, it's just funny when I think about it now because it's like, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. I should use this hill. Um, I probably look like I absolutely wasn't. Um so, um, but then after I like kept going and just um, started doing more road races, I think there there just were there were a couple like road races where I just like all of a sudden I was taking off like thirty second chunks, you know, in my PR in the five k or this was when there were more eight k's available. But um, 
And then, and then you, you know, it just becomes this excitement factor of like, oh, wow, well, if I did that, we you know, I'll see what else I can do. And, and um, just feeling that, that strength and ability grow. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear from you in your story how much of how much learning was involved for you and it sounds like in the competitive sphere because I think a lot of people when we hear about runners nowadays especially at the professional level it always sounds like oh they just won their first race in middle school and they were this natural talent and Mm -hmm. yeah this prodigy and there's this kind of myth of the prodigy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whereas what you're speaking to is that it's like yeah it took a a while for Mm -hmm. you to understand okay I can use the downhill like there's a lot of tactic and strategy Mm -hmm. in the actual sport that for some people doesn't come super intuitive from the beginning yeah absolutely I think there's a huge learning curve and you know there's so many you know now that I've had the good fortune of working with amazing female athletes and heard each of their stories whether that's Lauren you know Kara or Kate or you know, other athletes, um, Shalea, they, they have those stories as well. They, they, you know, the prodigy factor. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, so much, so much is, is, is hard work and perseverance and the training and just, you know, sticking in there. Um, and having an having a love for it, you know. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I've met a lot of people that are incredibly talented that don't necessarily have the drive. Uh, whether it's that it just doesn't interest them, they don't like being in pain. Um, you know, they want to do other things with their lives. And I don't know. I've always just been like, oh my god, you have this huge talent! I can't believe you're not going to use it. Uh, but there's a, a mental side to it as well. The the twisted runner brain, you know, that wants to push the edge and and get to that pain place. I mean, last night we had the opportunity to watch a 5K at the mm-hmm. Dempsey, and we were watching these women go by, and mm-hmm. they were in a lot of pain. pain. Yeah, there's nothing like watching a 5K <laughs> on the indoor track. <laughs> <laughs> to to see the the pain place come into full view. Yeah. yeah, totally. But there has to be a deep love for it to to stay the course. Yeah. With it. Yeah, absolutely. I think a deep love for it and just an ability to be in that place and to push through it. So it speaks to a real uh tenacity and just willingness to hurt. I remember even in my early running days um, I was mentioning, I was talking to my husband about training and he was like, you know, I've, and he's a coach as well. And he, he says, you know, there's a lot of people that you coach or that you see as athletes. And it's like, they almost don't realize that they can be in a lot of pain and actually still go fast or still do what they're doing. So instead of like encountering the pain and then backing off, like stepping into it almost embracing it realizing you know i've heard lauren talk about this a lot too realizing that it's like hello old friend you know here we are we're going to coexist in this mental space together yeah that it's not no matter what level you're at it's still really hard Mm -hmm. oh yeah totally totally i will say though that being in great shape (laughs) makes it a lot easier to really get out there and then because then you get to the pain place later you know and you get to it a little bit less and you're you're still always trying to minimize it but it's but when it does come you're you're still ready for it out of all the distances you've raced because i know you've raced a marathon and half what's your favorite distance to race Mm, the one that i'm fastest at (laughs) it doesn't have to be fastest at but which one like which one has which one has a place in your heart 
You know, I always loved the road 5K. Yeah, I mean, I, I did I did 5Ks on the track, and, you know, my fastest one, I was trying to break 17 was, like, my big goal, and I ran 17.06 on the track, which was, which was pretty fun. Um, but I always liked road races at that distance just because it's long enough to have a story to it. And, you know, I'm not a super, I'm, you know, I'm not a, a you know, ultra fast twitch, you know, sprinter turnover, um, woman. So I just, uh, it was, it kind of played to my strength as being, um, fast, but also having good endurance. And, uh, I think the 5k is long enough that you get to test all of that, but you know, it's not, it's not going to beat you up. Um, you can run another 5k the weekend after. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you can definitely go to the pain place in a 5k. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you're going to push yourself, there's, there's no worries there. I do like the half marathon. And I, one of the bits of research we've been talking about is how the half marathon is the most popular distance, um, especially among women and that the growth there among women has been the highest. So I think that's a really interesting, uh, tidbit and, my philosophy is just that it's it's the it's a distance that's still quite challenging but you know it's not you don't have to you know quit your day job and put your family life on hold uh to dedicate you know uh, so many hours that that you might have to with a marathon so i think i love the half marathon too i think it's a great great distance it's um it's just it's awesome 13 miles is significant and when you finish race. it, yeah, I mean, if it's your first time racing a half, I mean, it's such a gratifying experience. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and, it, and it's funny too because when I used you know go to expos more and talk to people, the people would just say, oh, you know, it'd be like a race that's had a half and a full marathon, and they'd be like, oh, well, I'm just doing the half, and I just used to always tell them it's not just the half; it's actually like a full thirteen. <laughs> so kind of changing people's perspective about that—that that it's not like a step down from the marathon; it really is its own beast. Uh, yeah, and you can push the pace harder than you might in a marathon to, to make it an equivalent in terms of effort. Yeah, completely, completely. So switching gears a little bit, I want to get back to Wazelle and understand what was the spark to, to start Wazelle? Like, did you have a vision of it being a full-blown women's running apparel company or what was the like initial seed? Yeah. There? Well, I, I mean, it was the coming together of the t- those two passions that I mentioned. I love design. I've always been – it's the thing that lights me up. It's absolutely my passion. And I did come to it from more of a graphic um, arena, but that was, um, you know, the big thing in my life. And then running was the other big thing in my life. And I had been competing, you know, from right away when I moved to Seattle all the way through my, you know, career changes, et cetera. So when I had that um, aha shopping moment, uh, it was, uh, it's funny because I was, you know, I was already a mom at that time and I had just had my second daughter and I was power shopping like a lot of moms do. You know, you got to get like 12 things done in 45 minutes. And I went down to Super Jock and Jill, our local running store, and I tried on everything. In the store. I was just like, I'm going to buy like, you know, I'm going to throw out all my old shorts. I'm going to buy like four new pairs. So I tried them all on and I just, I didn't like any of them. I, you know, they were just, you know, I thought they were in poor colors. I thought the, the fabric quality looked really cheap. I didn't like, um, um, the fit, you know, just the, the way that it, that fell in the body, it's like too poofy. And so anyway, that was, that was the spark where that kind of brought those two things together. The love of design and the love of running and basically just this idea of could I create something that 
fulfilled the requirements that I felt like I knew really clearly in my head as being, you know, somebody who had been dedicated to running for a long time. You know, I was running with my friends every week. You know, we just had this great group and we talked about apparel all the time. So, um, so that was the, that was the genesis of it. And I think it, it stuck in my head for a couple of years and grew a little bit there. And then it really wasn't until about 2006 that I started taking steps to create a pro- create a prototype, find out who could help me kind of build those first shorts that I was looking to, to create that were in my head. So the shorts were the first item that you developed? Yes, yes, the the Marseille shorts. And the funny story about those is that I, I look back on them now. We might bring them back because, you know, split leg shorts are kind of, they're always like coming back into style and a little bit retro and fun. But they, they were split leg shorts and they were, so the learning there was that there actually are very few women that want to wear split leg shorts. <laughs> I mean, I know you're out there and especially people who are probably listening to this are like, I like split leg shorts, but I will just say as somebody who was trying to sell them early on, I had so many women just be like, no, you know, this whole thigh area, I really just don't want that to be exposed. And so the, the first product of the company was, um, I launched it at the Seattle Marathon Expo, which was also funny because it was actually one of the years that it um, was threatening to snow. And so it was about, you know, 36 degrees threatening to snow the next day. And we were there with these tiny little ridiculous split leg shorts. And I just was like trying to get women to try them on and look at them. And and they're just like, I'm sorry, do you have like a, like a down sweatsuit? (laughs) (laughs) And they're just looking for winter gear. So so um, pretty quickly after that, I, I realized, and I'm—I mean, I'm embarrassed to say it now because as a brand person, you realize—you you know that it has to be a full story, right? Visually, product-wise, you really need to fill out your story and have multiple products that kind of bring that to life. And early on, I was like, well, maybe I'll just be the shorts company. And looking back on that now, I just think it's so silly. You know, you you really do need to have a, a full collection. So so once I got going with the shorts, I was like, okay, well, good thing I want to change a lot about running apparel. There's a lot I don't like. The tops at the time were super boxy and the fit was bad and the silhouettes and the fabric and all the same thing that was going on with the shorts um, was, was going. On and were you doing the design yourself, or had you were you collaborating with someone for the actual design? So I was doing the design. I was doing all the sketching. I was doing you know what it looked like, and then I was working with somebody who specialized in what you would call like a pre-production sample. So she was creating um, what's called a tech pack and the design of it and the look. Basically, everything that you would create that's like the blueprint for the garment before you hand it off to the factory. So I didn't know where I was going to get it made at the time, but I just knew that if I could work with her on this um, tech pack and this first prototype. So she actually, you know, helped me make, you know, a, a prototype that I could run in. Then I thought, well, if that works, I'll go to the next step. And in the first couple years, were you working on your own? What was the actual team of people around you like? Yeah, you know, I was I was doing all the seed funding, so I, you know, I did everything. I used our savings, I took out a second mortgage on our house. I basically was just 
you know, and I think this is, it's not unique to me. I think a lot of people that start companies and have that entrepreneurial idea, they're just so impassioned by their idea. They're kind of willing to do anything. It's a little bit scary actually. Uh, but my family was very supportive and I got seed funding from, you know, family, friends and family that believed in it. And so, so that was it. And then I also had a, a running friend, uh, Liz, who I basically tapped to just help me, you know, do, do the things that we needed to do everything from like bookkeeping to going to expos and talking to women about the shorts. So she, um, came on and we really worked hard on it together for, for several years. And the name Wazelle means mm-hmm. bird yes. in French. What was that? What was the story behind that? Yeah. So, uh, when I was telling you about my, my brand and agency background, so one of the things that became a specialty, I think just coming out of my English major, uh, degree was that I loved the, I loved naming. So I used to get hired to come up with company and product names as part of both my work at the agency. And then when I went out on my own and naming is actually quite difficult, um, in many cases, because, you know, it's complicated. A lot of words have already been trademarked and they're in use. And the way the government looks at trademarks is they have it sliced and diced by all these categories. And so you really need to have your word ownable uh, in a certain category. So for example, Wazelle is in international class category 25 uh, in the way that the the government looks at it. And so that's all, that's apparel. And so I, in my, uh, I mean, I, in my career as a namer, I had gone through a bunch of different interesting projects. I'm my probably my best known name is Plan B, which is uh, the emergency contraception product wow. that um, I came up with that name in in the late '90s, and that's a, fun, a funny story. I won't go into the whole thing now because it kind of went through some. You know, it was in, and then it was out, and then it finally did get adopted. And then also, I don't know if you've heard of Clover, but they they're a single cup coffee maker that before Starbucks owned them and you see them in their stores. It was an independent company here in Seattle. So before they were purchased, I named them. And so what we I would always consult with clients on is like the best opportunity for a name is to create what's called an empty vessel name. And an empty vessel name is essentially a word that is hopefully easy to say and pronounce and remember, but that has no inherent meaning necessarily in the word itself. So a good example of that is, I'm trying to think here. Well, I mean, actually Nike is a good example. It does mean the, you know, winged goddess of victory, but the word itself just doesn't have an immediate association with a literal meaning. So what they've been able to do is to fill the name with meaning over the years. And so Clover is the same way, right? It doesn't necessarily have an association with coffee, but they could fill it with meaning. So with Wazelle, I knew that I loved the French language. I knew that I wanted an empty vessel name. I wasn't afraid of quirky names because I think quirky names can actually be quite unique. And I knew that I needed something that I could trademark. And so I had had lived in France a little bit in college. And that's actually where I met my husband. He's, you know, he's not French, he's American, but we met over there. And so I was playing around with different words in the French language that I loved, and oiseau is French for bird, and that's the more common word for bird, and that's originally what I wanted to use. So when I was doing my research in the trademark categories, I looked it up and noticed that oiseau actually wasn't available in trademark 
25. Um, it was being used by an apparel company in LA called Mon Petit Oiseau, which means my little bird. And uh, I think they're still in business. They make um, little t-shirts and graphic tees and stuff. So so I had a little pity party for myself when I realized that I couldn't own Wazo. <laughs> and uh, I pulled my French dictionary off the shelf that's uh, uh, still here and was just looking through. And you know in dictionaries when you can see, you look up a word and you can see all the derivatives and the totally. background, et cetera. So I, I just kind of was scanning that and I spotted Wazel and I had never... I'd never seen the word before and I hadn't heard of it. So I looked into it a little bit further and I found out that, well, first it dawned on me that wazo is a masculine word. And, that's, and it sounds masculine too. Like it has yeah. this kind of gravity to it, I feel like. Yeah. And it has a lot of vowels. I mean, it, it only has one consonant. So it's, a, you know, if you talk about words that might be problematic for Americans to say wazo is even like a little bit more tricky because you look at it and you're just like, oh, that's an O and an I and an E-A-U and you're just like, whoa. Uh, so wazel at least had a little bit more of a, people get the L, you know, they understand how to say that. So it means, it's an antiquated French word for bird, female bird. And so once I realized that, you know, I had the light bulb moment of like, oh, okay, this is perfect. It's female and also it's ownable. There weren't any trademark conflicts and it just was a better fit for what we were going to do anyway. I hear what you're saying about the empty vessel idea and I think that's brilliant, but I do feel like there's an association with birds and what you guys have made with the company. Oh, yeah. Which is like there's this element which you speak of like with heads up, wings out. Wing, yeah. yeah, and just like the sense of flight and the mm-hmm. sense of strength and power and actually like flying right. in running. Yeah, and that's, it was absolutely intentional as well. When I say empty vessel, I think I mean more that Wazel may not be known just on its own. Like if you were to read it, a lot of people just don't know what it means. And it doesn't have cultural baggage. Right, right, exactly. And uh, I actually think that's why um, – so – some companies will have trouble if their names are too descriptive. Like I would say that Skirt Sports and Running Skirts Inc. is an example of where it can get problematic because they're so descriptive of the product that they're making that it's hard to own it uh, and it's hard to be different because it's, you know, people confuse the two, for example. So, so the but absolutely the bird meaning was very intentional just because for me running has always been about that powerful sense of freedom and flight when you can just you know and this is goes back to as far as I can remember with how I used running in my life you know when I was working at my jobs or as a parent it's just that time to get away and to be free and just you know when you feel your legs moving and you're just floating and you're just you know just completely free and it's a beautiful beautiful feeling that a lot of runners you know know in their hearts and so it was really about capturing that in a way that people could easily relate to and What's what's funny though is I had no idea that the bird metaphor would take off as as big as it did. You know, just all the bird references. You know, the office being called the nest, and you know, taking flight, and and the flock, and and the volet. You know, so um, fly style. There's just so many ways that it's been adopted. That I, I mean, it's it's I love it. I just. I wish I could say, like, I knew that was all going to happen, but it was more like, oh, yeah, I really like this idea of flight. And, you know, I think people will get it and like it, too. So it's been really fun to see it evolve. In the early years, what would you say was the biggest challenge or obstacle you faced? Were there ever times that you felt like maybe I maybe I need to actually, like, 
put this on the back burner and oh, pursue yeah. something else. I was way in over my head. I was way in over my head in the beginning just because, and I don't think it's necessarily bad. I think when you do start something big and new, you are sort of just by virtue of the, the, the thing you're, you are, you're, you're over your head just because you don't know so much. And so I think what was fortunate for me was just that I started on a very small scale. Like, I don't know if some if somebody came to me and said, I'm, I'm going to start an apparel line and I think I'm going to start with just one style. I would pause and just talk to them about how they were going to do that because it there's problems with doing it that way. Um, just in, and in part it's, it's that your growth will just naturally be slower and more organic. Now the upside of organic and slower growth is just that you make your mistakes on a smaller scale. So you are going to make mistakes. It's guaranteed. But if you are in over your head, it's better to be small, uh, and make them on a small scale than to make million dollar mistakes. And so, so I, I think there definitely were times when, there were definitely times when I thought about stopping and there were a couple of scary business times where, you know, I mean, this business is about two things, cash flow and inventory. And one of my mentors, um, Missy Park, the founder of Title IX, explained that to me on a walk talk once. <laughs> she said, it's cash flow and inventory and you need to manage those two things. And if you can't, you're going to be out of business. And if you can, you can keep going. And uh, so I, I definitely, there were a couple points where I just needed cash uh, to land inventory. We had orders for product, but not enough cash to pay for it. And it was at that time that I, I had to go out and find investors to come on board and believe in the company. And that was a, honestly a scary time because things, if they hadn't gone the way they did, then it could have been lights out. Yeah. And to have to really believe in what you're selling in its early stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have to believe because the process of getting others to believe in it is not not really possible if you are holding back in any way or if you are, you know, just trying to do a deal, I guess. Yeah, totally. What was the first athlete you signed or how did the like aspect of the team? Because I mean, we look at Nike or we look at Reebok and all these other running clothing companies and they didn't have, it seems like that grassroots team and the same or women's team, obviously, that you guys have had grow so much over the past couple of mm -hmm. years. Who was your first athlete? Well, our first athletes was our running friends here in Seattle. <laughs> I mean, I say that it's just, it's true. Like we, you know, like so many women throughout the country, you have your crew, right? You have your friends that you have been running with for a while, or maybe they're new friends, but you show up for each other week after week. And so I had that crew here in Seattle and that's why running has been always, why running and also Wazelle at its very most fundamental level is about the friendship through running. And that continues to drive us today and the day that it, that does not drive us I don't want to be a part of the company because it's so important and so our first athletes were really that crew that wore started wearing our stuff in races and representing and you know we made little singlets and just you know quick screen printed them and and 
So, of course, it's evolved quite a bit from there, but uh, that's, you know, we were going, I just remember one winter we drove to Spokane, Washington for cross-country nationals. It was the year that there was a literally like blizzard level weather. Uh, It was, the winds were blowing 25 miles an hour sideways. It was, uh, it was a tundra uh, and we were just out there wearing our wazal, you know, singlets just, you know, to just because that's what we had been doing prior to that. And we were just uh, forming this, this new thing. So, you know, and then from there thinking about, you know, then we did start to put more structure around it, like, okay, well, we need more than just like the five of us. So, uh, and that wasn't even five people in the company that was just, you know, friends here. So then we, we started to think about it in a bigger way and, and, and look a little bit beyond Seattle. And, and at the time I had an employee who was a coach in, in, uh, in Idaho and he kind of started, um, connecting us with some other fast athletes. And we, so we started to put the offer out there basically like we're new, we'd love for you to run in our gear. Are you interested in, you know, running and getting free gear and, and, and that's, kind of where it started and what was the first you feel like elite athlete you guys welcomed into the team that really made a mark on a national on the national scene oh my gosh absolutely lauren fleshman i mean we were in love with her and (laughs) i wish i I I could say it was unique but so many people are it's just uh and it's absolutely deserved she is a brilliant human and one of the most unique talented people i've ever met in my life so we were following her as fans and you know so as small as we were i still remember us talking about like oh, you know, these, these, you know, athletes, you know, like Lauren, you know, do you think we could ever have them on our team? And we're just like, oh, no, it's just not possible. They're just, they, they are getting paid too much money. And, you know, we're not there. It just would be, it would be silly for a company of our size to, to pay that much money for an athlete. And, and, you know, that's still a, a tension that we have as a small company. So, but yeah, we, we, uh, we're going down to Eugene for track nationals and, you know, seeing her, her race there, I was, you know, following her on Twitter and again, my love of Twitter and she was starting to get into it as well. And so, you know, started flirting online and, and, um, but, you know, I think we were, we were very, we were, we believed in that model of the athlete can be a powerful story that transcends elite sports into all aspects of life and into the, the human experience into the human experience and that the athlete journey really is a metaphor for the human experience because even if you're not racing at the national or international level you are absolutely faced with challenges in your life and you are going to need to overcome them in, in order to grow and that if you follow these athletes you you can get inspired by how they do it Yeah, completely. And so when you guys finally had Lauren join, what was that like? Uh, It was, you know, it was beautiful. I mean, it was, I would say, both with Lauren and and Kara, it was like this feeling of love wins. And it was just, we, we knew that our passion for the sport and for the friendship and running was what was driving us. And it was what attracted us to them as athletes. And I think what they were attracted to as well was just 
the genuine nature of what we were doing. So when it came together with Lauren, I mean, it was a long run up, you know, we, she, we stalked her for like two years and then we (laughs) talked to her in person for the first time in April of 2012. And then, you know, and then saw her again at the trials and then continued conversations after that. So it was a significant decision for her and, and for us. And so when it finally came together and we announced it, we had a New Year's Eve party on uh, New Year's Eve 2012 and announced it to the world. And it was the first day of 2013 and we called it Lucky 13. And and uh, it really was a lucky 13 year. And it was just felt, it just felt very joyous and very happy. And I, and we got that response from the community as well, that people felt like, oh, this makes sense. I, I, you guys belong together. So uh, immediately there was um, a, a feeling of um, that this was a, a a great collaboration and partnership. Completely. And when we release this podcast, it'll probably be after the trials. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kara is running the trials, which is really yes. exciting. What has that been like for you as a friend and mentor for her to watch her go through this training cycle? It's been amazing. It's just been such an honor. I, I, it's been an honor to get to know her better over the last couple of years. That was another case of where signing her just, you know, there was a, a, a you know, relatively long lead up to it and a lot of discussions around it and, you know, back and forth. And then when it, when it finally happened, it felt, you know, just so right. And it's continued to feel just as right since that happened. And, you know, she's, you know, like we've just been touching on the challenges of being a professional athlete, just staying healthy and staying focused and having the timing work out in your favor. And I never is that seem more important than with a marathoner because they're, they're just such significant athletic events that they put their body through and, and the whole buildup and everything. So it's been fascinating just to see watch her go through her progression and then the things she's had to deal with both on and off the track, you know, the last couple of years. But I'm just so happy to see her as healthy and fit as she is right now. It's, you know, she's had her injury stuff and, you know, knee surgery and sacral stress fracture and moving and, you know, these big things that she's had to kind of fix and solve. And so just the last I would say since the end of the summer and the fall, just to have her running so well and really, you know, come into her fitness in a way that I know that she knows she's capable of, you know, when things all kind of line up and to shake off nagging injuries like hamstrings. So it's just, I'm just really happy for her, you know, because, you know, regardless of Wazelle or what role we might play, just for her in her long career that she's had, to come to a third, you know, the the trials and a potentially making a third Olympic team feeling fit and ready so that no matter what happens, whether she makes the team or not, uh, she will feel at least that she was able to give it her best shot and come to the starting line her healthiest. Completely. Yeah. I think it is such a gift when you have had a training block where things are in alignment because it's really challenging when you're at the level like she is or Lauren is and you know you're not able to run to your potential yeah no absolutely and both of them have their own stories and are both mothers and you're a mother as well and I think there's a lot of women runners out there who are curious of like how do you balance it all I mean whether you're you know the business owner like you are or you're trying to run professionally what do you say to mother runners out there about that kind of work-life goal balance 
If you're a mother, you need to run. (laughs) (laughs) You absolutely need to run. It's, I have found that it made me so much more sane and capable and loving when I was running. I still remember early days, you know, having an infant, which is, you know, every mother knows that unique challenge of going through having an infant, which is something that nothing can ever prepare you for. And then when you go through it, you realize, okay, it's just this kind of weird twilight zone of sleep, no sleep, you know, absolute elation over this new relationship, but also disorientation and just kind of being in a completely new stage of life. And I remember if I could even just go out and run like a couple miles, three miles, it just gave me this sense of like, okay, no matter what this baby throws at me tonight, I can deal with it. You know, just a feeling of confidence and ability. So, you know, I, I, I just know so many mothers who, who recognize that and realize that running is and should continue to be very much a part of their their personal um, life system that helps them be healthy and also able to give their best selves to their kids and their family. Yes. When you look back at 2015, Wazelle did have a lot of growth and changes mm-hmm. in the team with the volley. Mm-hmm. What would you say it was the biggest challenge you guys faced in 2015 as a company? You know... I think every year there's new challenges for a business. So especially one that's fast growing and it's, you know, it could be anything. It could be like, well, we have this, you know, we opened the store, you know, in 2015. So that was a big thing. And that's been an exciting step. And there's all the learnings around it. And so kind of getting, getting that, getting that figured out. I think with the volley, you know, just like I said, because it originated in that, you friends. and your best friends. Yeah, <laughs> we want to run with our friends. So that, I mean, in in many ways, it may just sound overly simple, but that is still the reason that the volley exists. It's we're we're running with a really amazing, organic, somewhat far flung now team and group of friends, and you know, and with that though, because of the size and the distance, there's all kinds of challenges just in terms of. Kind of growing it in the right way, I guess I want to say. And we've, you know, definitely kind of had little fits and starts of figuring out what is that quote unquote right way. And at the core of it, really knowing strongly internally among our team, you know, among our even small team, we only have 20 employees. And I would say we have maybe three or four of us who work a lot with the volley, et cetera, knowing that we always want women to feel absolutely important and included and connected and for nobody to ever feel like, you know, they're not, um, you know, part of this very important community. But the reality is that isn't always going to go well, you know, that there's going to be somebody out there that feels, um, maybe that you don't know them well enough or that maybe you're not speaking specifically to them or that maybe there aren't isn't enough of a community where they live and so you know with when when those things come up we want to solve it but i think you know women tend to be we're over solvers sometimes we want to make everybody happy all the time we want to please we want to you know and and i think for the volley, the important thing for us to remember is that it is very much what it is, and it's an organic community that is reliant on whatever positivity our teammates want to bring to it. And if for some reason they feel like they don't want to bring positive, positivity, they want to bring negativity, then 
then that's just a question that maybe they want to ask, you know, like, is this the right place for me? And for us to ask, you know, it's okay if somebody finds that it's not the community for them and it's okay for people to sort of come and go depending on maybe they try it and they find that it's not the right fit. So so I think it's a it's almost like a social experiment, the volley. And I love that part of it. I love the organic nature of it. And I love that I can go anywhere in the country and put out a, you know, a tweet or, you know, a maybe a message to the group and is there anybody that wants to go for a run? question mark. And I've met so many people just through that. It's almost like couchsurfing.com. But for women <laughs> but, runners. But for women runners. And so so I think just always staying true to that. We're running with our friends and also that as a member of the volley, you'll get out of it what you give to it. And that, you know, this is not a this is not a product offering in a way. It's uh it's it's more of a um of a combined collaboration. Yes, and that you create a platform, but ultimately people can use that platform how they'd like. Like it's like almost letting go of control too, which I imagine is pretty intense when you do have control over the products and design, but you're creating a community, which is human beings interacting with one another and they're going to feel how they feel. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I, and I think you said letting go is an important thing for us. So one of the things, you know, you've probably seen, we've, we've been kind of tight on the controls of the size of the volley pure, purely because we were concerned about that experience that each team member had when they came. We're like, okay, well, if we open it up to a thousand women, we need to make sure that they're all taken care of and they feel valued and important. So then coming to that realization, okay, we, we feel like we've done, we're doing that as well as we can. And, you know, if, and, you know, maybe some people decide that we're not, in which case they can opt out, which is great. But we also want to open it to more women. Um, and that's a loss of control thing that we'll have to We'll have to see how that goes, but I feel confident that there are so many women out there that would be awesome to have as part of the community. And my only hope is that the women that are currently in it ex- open their arms and welcome new new women into the group and uh, and not have it be like I was here first, and you know, therefore uh, I want to have it closed off. And I think uh, that's that's a really um, important part of what we're going to try to do next. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more of where you see the volley growing in 2016. Like how will you actually put that into practice? Yeah. So one of the ideas we have around it is almost like a sports franchise. Like, I mean, I'll take the Seahawks, for example. They're a professional team, right? And they have thousands and thousands of fans that are rooting for that team. Super fans. Yeah, super fans. People that fly the 12th man flag. They be like driving around their car. They got bumper stickers. They got hats. They got, you know, they're living the Seahawks lifestyle in a way. And I think that that could be a really interesting model to look at for a women's team. I mean, in a way, we have a professional team, right? We have the women who are on the track and on the roads and racing at the highest level. But then we also have a huge community of women that are participating in the sport at whatever level they decide is meaningful for them. And then we all have the ability to come together and be fans, not just of the pro team, but of each other. And that that community aspect of a sports franchise is super important. It's like you're in the club and you share a language and you share common goals and you're rooting for people, but you don't necessarily, it doesn't have to be a cult, 
and it doesn't have to be a religion, and it can be very independent and diverse. And I think if that's one thing I hope and dream for for the volley is a super diverse group of women and a few brave men, <laughs> athletes who who just love the sport and just want to get their you know, the equivalent of the 12th man flag on and uh, cheer for each other and cheer for the pros. So I think that's, that's kind of the model that we've been talking a lot about, uh, is, is being this, uh, sports franchise and, and the other component of it that I would say is not, uh, included in something like the Seahawks is that we're, we're creating a 501c3 nonprofit, Foundation, which um, when people um, pay a membership and become part of the volley, that $25 goes into this charity uh, or foundation. And we're working on articulating specifically what, you know, the goals of that charitable foundation will be. But right now, it's basically that money goes to helping our emerging elites take the next step to in their training. So they're trying to reach that national or international level of competition. But in order to do that, there's quite a quite a few costs associated with it, whether it's physical therapy or travel or gear. Um being able to, you know, dedicate as much time as they need to, to, to do that. So, so that's where the money is going now. And I'm really proud that when we're going to, when we go to LA, uh, on February 13th, we're going to have 18 Olympic trials qualifiers, awesome. <laughs> uh, out of, I don't know what the field that size is. <laughs> yeah. I think the field size, I don't know if it's 200 or 250, but for the size of company we are to have that high a number, um, towing the line, it makes me really Really excited and proud for those women, and and proud of uh, the volley who did pay the, that membership that helped fund that. That that's what that's exactly where that money is going is helping those women um, reach that goal. And I think so. Now our next step is even thinking bigger than that. If we do form this charitable foundation, what what could we do? to further not just help emerging elites, but to help women in sports in general. And one of the big things we've been talking about recently is that if you look, there's a lot of research around the drop-off in female participation in sports following high school and college. So you'll see, you know, there's good participation there, but then after college, they're just, there's kind of this weird uh, valley in, in for women in general, and you're kind of in your early to mid twenties. And so like, what, what do you do? How do you continue being active? How do you continue participating in a sport? And that's the space that Wazelle would like to help fill is that post-collegiate sport participation, um, letting women know that, no, you, you actually don't have to stop doing cross country after college. If you still love it, you don't have to stop being on a team if you still love it. You don't have to stop competing if you love it. And I that's the the vision and the hope for the volley is that we can play a role for women, especially in that part of their lives. Yeah, and to give women more resources. Because I think there's actually people don't realize how many different clubs there are and different sanctioned races and all these different kind of opportunities and nooks to try out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't even know you could do cross country after college when I was, I mean, I went to that race that I told you about where I was dead last, but it's actually evolved a lot since then. And there's all kinds of clubs. I mean, Wazelle is just one among many, you know, USATF uh, clubs around the country where you can compete. Um, I think the, one of the key things 
with the volley and with these clubs and competing at that level too, and also with women's lives in general, that I think is an interesting point, is that there will come a time in your life when that's an important thing for you, competing and doing that. And then uh, most likely your life will change. And whether that change is moving to a different part of the world, getting married, not getting married, having kids, not having kids, deciding to put more of your energy in your career, um, deciding to live in a yurt and not do anything. I don't know. Whatever it is, there may come a time when running is not as big a part of your life. And even if you're a member of the volley, you might want to step away and not be a member of the volley for a while. So uh, I just, I like to communicate that idea because I think sometimes feel like, oh, if I'm in the club, then I'm either in it forever and maybe if I step away, I feel like I'm a traitor or I'm like dropping off. But it's yeah. like, no, women's lives are so dynamic. And you may be doing something so different five years from now than what you're doing today. And that you could rejoin. Exactly. And that it's not like doors are closed. Exactly. Or you could be on the spectator side instead of the racing side. Totally. You could hang up your singlet and be like, I'm doing something else, you know, for now, but... So I think that's another thing with the volley. It's like it's, it can be very fluid, and I experienced that in my own life. I mean, I out of college, I wanted to just compete for – I spent like almost 10 years just racing hungry. my brains yeah. out, just so hungry to like keep setting new PRs and stuff. But then once I – I, I backed off and, you know, I had two kids. I, you know, I, I remember like seeing the emails and, um, you know, this is before social media. So like, you know, seeing, you know, hearing about get togethers and races. And I, I kind of was watching it from afar and a little bit jealous that I wasn't doing it, but also just so happy that I was with my baby and, you know, doing and something different. And then I, and then I picked it back up again after, you know, my kids were, you know, a year, a year old, I was like, okay, time to, Time to get back to using my body as a, as a runner. Who has been the biggest mentor for you in either your own running journey or in kind of developing the Wazelle team and the work you do now? You know, I have so... I, I've met so many women in my life that have been in, important mentors to me, whether that was at the agency I mentioned um, uh, Ann Connell, who who taught me everything I know about branding. You know, she wasn't a runner, um, but she was a, just a strong woman mentor in my work. And then, you know, later, I would meet I would meet many women through my work. But I would think, as part of Wazelle, I th- meeting Sarah Lesko was a really important part of Wazelle's journey. Be- and because it it opened my eyes to a dynamic. I actually read a quote recently. It was I think it was uh, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey talking about each they other. They are awesome. They are awesome. And they and one of the quotes was that you know, it's great to be a strong and driven woman, you know, but if you can connect with other strong and driven women and endorse each other, for whatever you're doing in your lives. And it will, it'll toggle back and forth. It can be you to them and them to you. That is a powerful dynamic that is unlike any other. And it's, and so I've, the mentors I've had are kind of mentors slash friends. Sarah Lesko has been an incredible friend and mentor to me, just in some ways, because her personality and strengths are a little bit different than mine. She's a very, she has a ton of integrity intelligence and drive and she's she's sensitive to things that maybe I'm not sensitive to and she looks at the world a bit a little bit differently 
Um, and she's often a balance to my, I, I can be a little bit compulsive. I just kind of like want to do things and, you know, and I get frustrated with people and I can be impatient. And then she kind of brings me back to like that, you know, well, let's, let's think this through or, or, you know, she's very empathetic. Um, you know, Lauren has been another incredible mentor to me, um, just in that her, you know, what she does and the way she does it is just so thoughtful and again, integrity, uh, and And courageous, courageous, um, funny, you know, just that she, you know, these are people that they take life seriously, but they also know when it's time to just, you know, laugh at yourself, laugh at your, at the world and, um, you know, just, uh, see things with perspective that we all need, you know, because at the end of the day, life is not perfect. And it's, uh, you know, the sooner you accept that and, and, and just kind of enjoy the parts that you can and do the best you can, the better off you'll be. You know, I've had business mentors as well. Missy Park, who founded Title IX as just a a smart woman who taught me a lot about, uh, just the ins and outs of the business, uh, Asuko Tamura, who is our current president, is an amazing human who I just am so grateful I get to work with every day. She's been my wing woman, so to speak, in growing Wazelle. Um, just a great business mind and knows how a business is structured, everything that I had I had known from the outside as a consultant, but I had never grown a business, you know, where I'm thinking about like operations and finance and human resources and, you know, sales projections and channel strategy and, you know, things that I I think a lot about now, but her background at REI and at Evo and at these companies where she had been through that has been really um, uh, powerful for me and just through my personal growth. Yeah, it's given us all a different level of depth probably to the structure through her insight. Oh, yeah, totally. And then even on the athlete side, Kara Goucher, I mean, I have never met an athlete who is more focused single-mindedly on her training and on her family. It's like she's decided these are the things that are meaningful to me, and I will say no to everything else. And I think that's another, like, people, women say yes to a lot of things. They say yes, they say yes, they say yes. And then they're drowning and they're frustrated and they're not happy and they're feeling like they're compromising in areas that they don't want to compromise in. And that's a really, you know, and I've, I've gone down that because it's just like building a business. You want to say yes to everybody. You know, somebody approaches us, oh, we really want you to sponsor this race or this, you know, and I've just like, we would love to do that. We have to be incredibly focused on the things we've already said yes to. And so I actually have to say no to you. And I'm sorry um, that I have to do that, but that's just where I'm at. And I think, you know, being as upfront and direct about that as possible. So you've said the word integrity in describing Sarah and Lauren. Mm -hmm. And I think a company with integrity has that clarity of knowing like what it does want and what it doesn't want. Mm -hmm. And so saying no is a part of that. Yes, absolutely. And I say that, you know, even knowing in my head that we still are, you know, we we struggle with that every day, even though I can say no to race promotion, because that's an area I've like clearly identified, even priorities within Wazelle. Like if we, you know, if you had to say, you know, pick, you know, you could only pick two out of these seven seemingly super critical things that Wazelle needs to do. That's a hard exercise because the five other things that you're going to say no to, they feel super, super important and critical. And you, you are really tempted to be like, screw it. Let's, we're just going to do all seven and come on guys, like, you know, 
pull on your pain pants, as we like to say sometimes in racing, and let's just get it done. So, and that, and sometimes it's just not the smartest thing to do. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. You burn people out. Um, you know, people love their jobs and they're so passionate. And I'm so lucky to work with a team of women who love what they do and pour everything that they have into helping Wazelle succeed. But, you know, you, there can be, there can be, uh, liability and and casualties and you you just you just never want to see that as somebody who who wants to be a mentor and, and lead people and help them grow in this year 2016 there's the hashtag woman up mm. which i love what does that mean to you in your own life well, it's funny you mentioned that in terms of priorities because I've even been thinking about it with uh, <laughs> with staffing and and helping people i i you know, I think for me personally, I think it's that that strength to to make those tough decisions and I think it you know, I mean it it means courage and 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 making tough decisions and I mean obviously it has the athletic component to it with the training and 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 pushing through challenging times but kind of along the lines of some of the things that we've talked about in this podcast, even that are, are particularly challenging for women, whether that's, you know, learning to say no, um, you know, whether that's learning to not be, a, you know, a perfectionist, whether it's learning to not be so much of a people pleaser. Uh, all of those are, I think, are woman up moments, you know, that you can have. And so I wouldn't want the connotation to be that, you have to do it all, you know, just woman up and you can do it all because I think that's another myth, you know, that we're able to do all of these things well. So it could be more like woman up and focus on the things that you realize you don't want in your life. You know, there are things probably dragging on you, whether it's people or things that you've said yes to that aren't additive to what where you want to go, that you actually need to sit down and have a tough conversation with yourself and, and, and cut it out. And, and that can be painful and emotional, you know, especially if it's around relationships and people. Yeah. That can be really painful and scary. Yeah. I mean, when you're, I think when you're following your heart, um, and especially at least in the workspace for you with Wazal, you're doing something that people haven't done before. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a lot of people who may not actually support that. Absolutely, and that, and it touches on the volley. You know, we've talked about it internally. It's like you know, um, we're gonna we're gonna do what you know makes sense. And you know, if uh, if somebody's um, negative or unhappy with us, we need to have the strength to say, you know, my friend, you need to carry on in a different area of life. And you know, it's it's not a match. It's not a match. So, uh, and and that takes confidence on both sides. So. So I, you know, and I've definitely, I think like everybody in life, you know, you've definitely gone through periods of having, you know, uh, maybe relationships with people that aren't positive or, you know, I remember once, uh, you know, in my twenties, I had a, one of my close, uh, running friends, you know, I, I realized I was just kind of a therapist. I don't know if you've ever had a friendship like that where you're just, you, and it probably happens to you a lot because you love to talk to people and kind of hear their stories, but, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> you're like, actually, it's my profession. <laughs> um, but, you know, if, if you feel like you're in that relationship where suddenly it dawns on you that you are just, you know, the, the receptacle. Yeah, the receptacle for all of their rants and their problems and their. Um, that, that's actually not healthy. Uh, relationships need to be two ways, and you need to be getting something from the relationship as well as them. And even though theoretically you can get something from being a therapist, uh, it's you know long term. Uh, it's not uh, you know symbiotic and and you know mutually a, a good thing. Yeah, with Woman Up in your own running, what. What's your own running like? Do you have any goals for 2016 or do you have a certain mm. framework in which you're understanding your relationship to it right now? You know, to be totally honest, I'm struggling a little bit with my running right now, not in the sense of doing it. I'm still running almost every day and you know, I'm I'm definitely an endorphin junkie that needs to to sweat once a day and Me just <laughs> get get her workout in and I'm I'm not as as good of a person if I haven't done something. But I don't really have a, a specific goal, and uh, I, I rely a lot on my running crew. So I run with uh, Sarah Lesko a lot, and she's actually injured right now. She got an injury from uh, shoveling snow and bent. Um, it was it was in for a good cause though, shoveling snow for so that the little wing girls could do their do their workout on a track. Um, so I. Uh, I don't know. I, I'd love to do some 5Ks and maybe a half marathon. There's a half marathon here in Seattle called the Lake Sammamish Half that's in early March, which I really recommend to people who might be in the local area here. It's a point to point and it's a little bit net downhill, super cool. fast. So I had a really, I had a fun time last year. I was in better shape um, this time last year and I had a good half marathon time on that course. But other than that, I think just it being such an exciting year with all the the pro racing going on. I just want to um, find some runs to to jump in and do some training. I mean, I'm still hooked on training is the problem. It's not satisfying enough for me to just run. So I like doing workouts. I love the feeling of having done something really challenging and just that, just, you know, you just get drunk on workouts sometimes. You're just like, I mean, we laugh about it. it's like workout brain. Have you ever like gone to go do something like order coffee or get food? You go to the grocery store and you space out and you're like wandering around the aisles, like just like a drunken sailor. So I, I love that feeling and, uh, and of having pushed my body to, to the limit. So I think that'll probably be the, the hardest thing for me turning into a more of a, more and more of a master's runner is just, I can feel my body changing in the sense of not being able to push it to the limit as much as I could in the past and realizing that recovery from a hard workout takes four days instead of the two that it used to take. And so I think that's definitely just just a challenge, you know, uh, just a reality. Yeah. What's cool, though, is that I feel like you're walking the walk, you're talking the talk. Like, I think there's a lot of people out there who may own a company or are endorsing something mm -hmm. and they're not actually practicing what they're doing. And mm -hmm. that's what's so beautiful to me about you and the Walzile team in the nest is like, you guys really are, you all have your own love of running in a different way. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we, we do hire people that aren't runners. <laughs> It does happen, and we hire men too. But uh, I've seen it happen again and again that somebody's been hired at Wazell, and they don't really run, but they're not against running. And then within a six-month period, they're they're running because they're just like, "What are you people on? Like, what? 
<laughs> we're on like some kind of crazy drug. Uh, and, you know, they hear it at staff meeting every week of like the stories of, you know, Kristen, you know, our team leader, she every uh, Monday morning reads off, you know, race results from, you know, what our Hope Volley is doing and even, you know, different Volley activities. So uh, it's, it's, addicting and um I will say yes I I do I do walk the walk the talk in fact I have a I do a weekly workout usually um all year long and I either do it Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning but I have it blocked out on my calendar and um if I'm talking to somebody who's maybe in the business world that's not a runner or not an athlete you know I always just say I, I'm sorry I can't I can't meet on Tuesday morning I have a standing meeting at that time and I don't go into any details uh, but that's just it it is what it is and my staff knows that I'm doing a workout and you know I can always move it if you know something something big comes but but I think that's one bit of advice I have for people when they ask about how do I fit running into my professional life and I'm like well if you have the ability and I know not everybody has the ability but if you can really make it this non-negotiable part of your work week and I say work week because it's you need to like treat it um, as significantly maybe as you do your career. So I, it's, 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 it is a little easier for me to say at Wazelle and as the, the founder and the CEO, but I, I just, I encourage my staff to do it too. And, you know, they'll be out doing workouts and it's just part of what we do. Yeah. And that, I mean, Sarah, who is a huge part of your company, she mm-hmm. just qualified for the Olympic I know, trials. Like, I know. We're we're so happy for her. I'm so happy for her personally. Just, you know, having worked alongside her for five years and having seen her. And by the way, she was one of the people who like she she was a great high school and college runner. But I think after college, she took some time off and she wasn't running a lot, or maybe not very competitively when she started at Wazelle, and then definitely got got back into it. So I've you know seen her really get into it seriously, and she tried to qualify before in Chicago and didn't work out. And so you just see these you know these buildups and attempts and not working and injuries and all that. And so just to have her have that moment at CIM and, and qualify and just the sheer joy of it was really incredible. And, you know, I think I know I'm not alone. There were so many people that, ha- that, that understood the, the importance what of that, that moment meant. for her too. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. So I feel like we've, we've covered a lot. What, what haven't we talked about that you want to bring to the mic? I, gosh, I don't know. I, I just, I mean, it, it sounds cliche, but as this, as the sun is like breaking through uh, and shining in right now, but it's, I'm just incredibly grateful for this, the opportunity to, to run with and serve and know women athletes. It's just been beyond my expectation in terms of like the diversity of people I've met and, and, you know, not just was, I mean, just the sport at large, you know, the industry. And I guess I would say that even though I remain incredibly grateful to have that experience, I think also looking at things that need to be fixed, you know, we didn't touch on any of the like, sport controversy or political stuff. But, you know, and I think that's an area that Wazelle has stepped into a bit 
And I just encourage people to think maybe a little bit down the food chain in terms of the things that they believe in. Like if you love sport and you love, and you're going to be watching the Olympics this summer and you, and there's so many people are right. It's like track and field is kind of the crown jewel of the Olympics. I would encourage people to get a deeper understanding of the inner workings of professional track and field and why it is, how it is, and how the athletes are able to do or not able to do um, and get to that level because there's a lot that's kind of broken in the sport right now. And I realize that it's beneath the surface and I myself had zero interest in it before I started Wazelle and before we started sponsoring pro athletes. But particularly for women professional athletes, the way contracts are currently being written that harm them if they decide to become a mother, um, that work against all of the things that I believe are important as a woman and as a mother. So uh, there's just uh, a lot that still needs to be done. And I would encourage on whatever level that you can get knowledgeable or, or be informed about those issues, it's super important uh, for women in general and also for the health of the sport. Yeah. And the run gum lawsuit is something that Wazelle has been pretty vocal about. Can you talk to me a little bit about Wazelle's support of that? Oh yeah. We just agree, um, with the basic tenet of what Nick Simmons and run gum is talking about. And, and they're dealing with a very specific, uh, Olympic trials issue around the types of businesses that can, put a logo on a uniform that is competing at the events, whether that's the marathon trials or the outdoor track trials. And it's an important one. And it's one that we've run up against, not necessarily that we couldn't have our logo on the singlets, but that the size and the limitations of the logo are such that uh, it, it really does not make much sense as a business to invest in athletes when that's all you get is you get this tiny 30 square centimeter slot on the singlet. And so, so we absolutely support uh, Nick and run gum and opening that up, but it so much more needs to be done than that. I think that is just one, one example of the arbitrary rules right, right. that are in the sport <clears throat> and that are actually stopping companies and athletes from keeping our sport clean and from expanding and being empowered in what they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think the legal thing they're going for is that it really, the USOC and the USATF really doesn't have legal grounds to pick and choose the types of companies that can be present at the Olympic trials presence. Um, uh, and so I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to win that um, pretty easily. Uh, I think the the bigger issue is around uh, the world's and national and Olympic level uh, sponsor visibility. And that's a lot of what Lauren Fleshman was talking about when she went to the USATF annual meeting this year and presented her proposal, which was to give athletes real estate on the jersey so that they could have a second logo that was their own to to sell to their sponsors so that they could improve their own income. Because I think the average income of most uh, pro track and field athletes is, I mean, it's like fifteen to $20,000 is, is what um, they're able to make. And it's just, you know, we all know that that's not a living wage and you're not, you wouldn't be able to train full time just on that income alone 
from sponsors. So the whole thing is just about opening it up so that more companies like Wazelle or, or Rungum or Strava or Picky Bars or Picky Bars or Noon can sponsor athletes. But the only way that they're going to, the only reason they're going to do that is if they're going to have visibility on the jersey. And if they can't have visibility on the jersey, then it absolutely doesn't make sense. And by the way, guess who that benefits if that doesn't happen? There's a monopoly in the sport. Nike has an exclusive relationship with the USATF and they've got a lockdown um, on all of that. And so there's nothing that they're going to do to help open that. There's nothing that the USATF is going to voluntarily do to open that up because it goes directly against their interests, their private interests that they have to protect their deal uh, with Nike and with other uh, major sponsors who uh, ha- have licensing agreements with them, and all the way up to the USOC and the IOC. So, so yeah, it's a it's a complicated issue. But I think if you just simplify it by thinking about it from the athlete perspective and their earning potential, they have no earning potential right now. They have no leverage because of this monopoly situation. So, uh, just uh, wanting athletes to have a better um, potential to earn is really where it's at. And that will be good for, for the whole ecosystem, not just Wazelle, not just athletes, but other businesses as well. Yeah. And then it starts with us in getting informed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Sally. I really appreciate it. It's oh my gosh. Thank you. This gift. has been, um, just so fun to talk about and to, to be on your po- podcast, which I love. Yeah. I have a little bucket list of people that I, have dream of having on my podcast and you were one of the earliest names on it like two and a half years ago so it's kind of (laughs) a cool moment to be sitting with you Uh, well thank you very much isn't sally amazing i'm so excited for the growth of wazelle in 2016 and really honored to have her on running on ohm if you aren't already following sally on twitter her handle is at wazelle underscore sally And I enjoy reading her daily tweets on all things sports activism, business, and Wazelle related. Reach out to us on Twitter. Let us know you tuned in and what moved you from today's conversation. Before I sign off for the week, I want to remind you again of today's podcast sponsor, Neocart. For all those out there whose knees hurt, I know there are many runners, yogis, athletes, and individuals who on a daily basis face chronic knee pain or a knee injury. Neocart's investigational regenerative medicine technology that is being compared to the current state of care microfacture is for anyone who is between the ages of 18 and 59. Ask yourself right now, is my knee pain stopping me from living my best life? Or is stopping a loved one from being active? If so, then this clinical trial may be right for you. To find out more, text KNEE17 to 87888 or call 844-238-5633. That's 844-238-5633 or text KNEE17 to 87888. Also, check out this episode's show notes or neocartimplant.com to learn more. And if you're wanting to take your active lifestyle to the next level, Jaybird Sports The Rain is being offered to Rue listeners for a huge discount of 40% off this advanced activity and recovery tracker. 
The rings worn on your wrist like a sleek and comfortable bracelet, but does so much more than just track your steps and sleep. The rain is a tool for you to optimize your recovery and performance with its go zone that gives you a go score every morning that tells you how recovered, fatigued, or ready you are for your next workout based on your heart rate variability data. The rain also automatically tracks and categorizes the various activities you do and provides you with recommendations on how many hours to sleep, when to head to bed, and when to wake up based on your sleep patterns. If you want in, today's podcast sponsor, Jaybird, is offering Rue listeners a discount of 40% off the rain with the discount code FLESHMAN40, that's F-L-E-S-H-M-A-N-40, which is valid before February 29th, 2016 on jaybirdsport.com. So just a few days left for you guys. And for more information on the rain, visit this episode's show notes. Thank you for choosing to tune into Running on Ohm. Thank you for supporting the show. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. This is your host, Julia Hamlin, and I hope you have a rue-filled day. Mm-hmm.